Garden Basics with Farmer Fred is brought to you by Smart Pots, the original lightweight, long-lasting fabric plant container. It's made in the USA. Visit smartpots.com/fred for more information and a special discount. That's smartpots.com/fred. Welcome to the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred podcast. If you're just a beginning gardener or you want good gardening information, well, you've come to the right spot. Growing a garden is very similar to doing a successful podcast. It takes patience, perseverance, and a willingness to try something new. Welcome to episode 100 of the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred podcast. I began this audio adventure just as sheltering in place was taking hold last spring. Many of you took that opportunity to play in the yard, so to speak, while learning something new, something that can be fun and healthy for the entire family. If that was your impetus to seek us out here, welcome to the world of gardening. And I see you're still at it. Kind of addicting, isn't it? And for all of you longtime gardeners, thank you for sticking around and helping making the Garden Basics podcast one of the most listened to in the world. There's something like two million podcasts around. And this one, Garden Basics, after just 100 episodes, ranks in the top 2% in numbers of listeners worldwide. Thank you for that. And a big thank you to all the regular contributors to this podcast who made it happen. People like Debbie Flower, Don Shore, Steve Zion, Ed Livo, Warren Roberts, Gail Pothauer, Debbie Arrington, Rachel Long, and so many more. And thanks for those who have provided the seed money for this podcast, so to speak. Great advertisers such as Smart Pots, Dave Wilson Nursery, and Tomorrow's Harvest. So to celebrate 100 episodes, I thought we might revisit the top three interviews that we have aired in just over a year. That's based on the number of downloads per episode. And to no one's surprise, two of them have to do with tomatoes, the most popular vegetable that's grown in the United States and in many other countries as well. The third most listened to episode featured a primer about your garden soil, why it's so important, and what you can do to have even healthier soil for your garden. And again, thank you for your support and comments. Keep them coming. I want this show to reflect what you want in a garden podcast. Go to the show notes to find out how to email, call, or text me with your thoughts on that. Or I guess I could just tell you. You send the emails to fred at farmerfred.com or call or text me 916-292-8964. 916-292-8964. And again, that info is also in today's show notes. All right, let's go. Oh, one more thing. This might run longer than the usual 30 minutes. Not by much. I hope you understand. First up, the most listened to episode, and that happened to be episode number three that featured this tomato and pepper planting tip from our favorite retired college horticultural professor, Debbie Flower, who I am so glad is a big part of this podcast. It's interesting that two of the most popular summertime vegetables, tomatoes and peppers, can be planted deeply. And I mean way deeply. So let's say you buy an eight inch tomato plant at the nursery and you go to transplant it into your garden. You could actually bury, what, six inches of that eight inch plant. It's one of the, uh, the 
things I told my students in horticulture education, you learn the rules and then you spend the rest of your life learning the exceptions. And this is an exception that you can plant the plant much more deeply into your garden than it was in the pot. Why is that? Well, they have the ability to make roots on their stems. If you've grown tomatoes before, perhaps you've seen that as the the branches get older and bigger. And sometimes they sag and you'll see bumps along the stem. And for for that plant, they are able to make roots there. And that's great, if you, especially if you've started tomato plants from seed and maybe they've gotten a bit lanky. And uh, if you tried to plant it at soil level in the garden, it would just fall right over. Well, one way around that is to bury it deeply. But I guess you could also, if you wanted to, if you couldn't go deep, maybe you could go long and dig a trench and uh, bury most of it in the trench and leave the top couple of inches sticking out. That may be the better choice if the plant is very tall. Because if you, let's say the plant is two feet tall, if you dug a foot and a half deep hole, the roots are going to be really low in the soil and maybe out of reach of oxygen and water. So the trench idea would definitely work. So you just dig a trench along uh, the soil, uh, lay the plant in it, and turn it up at the end. You may need a stake to make the end stand up straight, but that's okay. It'll be a well-rooted, and it's really an advantage to the plant because now it has so much more rooting system, and it takes a lot of roots to make a lot of tasty tomatoes. Do you have to strip off the lower leaves when you plant it that way? You do not. Oh, what about pepper plants? Can you do that the same way as well? Yes, you can do that the same way as well. Well, that how easy do you want it? Boy, that's great. You know, you can just dig a trench and uh, plant it, leaving the top sticking out. And would you leave out what, the top two sets of leaves, or how much would you leave out sticking above the soil surface? The top two sets would probably be my minimum. You could leave more if, if you've got a sturdy plant and want more of a presence above ground. Now, we should point out that... As you pointed out, Debbie, this is the exception, not the rule. Generally, when you buy plants at the nursery, uh, you want to plant them at the same depth that they came in in the pot from the nursery. And uh, this is the exception. Absolutely. It is the exception. Yes. So don't screw it up, folks. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, but grow your tomatoes, especially tomatoes and peppers. They're they're easy productive plants. It's so satisfying. Exactly. Debbie Flower, always a pleasure. Thanks for a great garden tip. Thank you, Fred. I mentioned that tomatoes took the top two spots for the Garden Basic episodes that drew the biggest number of listeners. And if you grow tomatoes, well, you probably have problems with them. And we tackled those concerns with nursery owner Don Shore in episode 21, Tomato Troubleshooting. Everybody loves to grow tomatoes. Everybody has problems at one point or another. What are some common tomato maladies that you might be bothered with this year? Let's talk to the king of the the tomato in Yolo County. By the way, Yolo County, the home of tomato processing in California. The tomato king would be Don Shore, owner of Redwood Barn Nursery in Davis, California, And Don, I I think after uh, people plant their tomatoes, especially if they planted them too early and there's still some cold or wet weather involved, there may be uh, some issues with flowers and fruiting to start off. 
There are often problems early in the season as the plant goes into soil that's cold. We talk about this frequently when we're on, you know, together on your program about waiting for those nights to warm up, waiting for the soil to warm up, and the plant will just languish. It will show all kinds of apparent nutrient deficiencies that are actually root damage from going into cold soil. Good news is they'll usually outgrow those problems. And if you did a little side dressing or applied a very small amount of fertilizer at the time of planting, it'll be fine. I wouldn't worry too much about that. The next thing that happens is we get rain uh, invariably at some amount in in March, of course, April, and even into May. And that rain doesn't do a whole lot in terms of watering the plants, but it does get the leaves wet. And it's not uncommon for us to start seeing some leaf diseases on the young tomato plants, uh, two or three major ones that were, are, are common in our area. The good news is we're in an area that's dry. We're in an arid western states. I realize your podcast, of course, has an international audience. So we deal out here mostly with a little bit of early blight, sometimes some bacterial leaf speck, and sometimes some late blight. And in the case of the first two, pick off those leaves, the weather warms up, it gets dry. That's the end of the problem. You don't have to worry about it. It just goes away. Late blight is less common, but we do run into it, and sometimes it gets further into the leaf, into the petiole, into the stem, and can kill a whole part of the plant. So that's obviously worse, and that can become you know, even potentially life-threatening to the plant if we continue to have unusual late-season rains, as we did, for example, in May 2019, when it rained and rained and rained all the way through the month. You need to cut that out pretty quickly when you see it and get rid of it. Listeners east of the Mississippi need to go to their garden center and buy a fungicide. We don't need to do that here. We know that at some point, I can promise this, it'll be warm and the humidity will be low and the problem will solve itself. But if you do happen to see some rapid dieback occurring, you need to prune that out. Okay, I have a question about uh, flowers that fall off. Sometimes nurseries will sell you a product designed to keep the flowers on the plant. Is that worth the money? No, says the nurseryman. No, it's not worth the money. <laughs> There'll be plenty of time for the flowers to set and give you plenty Explain. of fruit. If you're listening in Corvallis, Oregon, Seattle, Washington, Fort Bragg, California, those products may be the only way you get tomatoes to set. And so, yes, they would be appropriate for you in that climate. Uh, they are, they're an interesting spray. It's a hormone spray that induces fruit set without pollination. Interestingly, you get basically seedless tomatoes when you do that. And in really cool climates that are just not totally suitable for tomatoes, they may be appropriate here. We'll get to the point where the blossoms will set fruit. I, I can guarantee it. You know, tomatoes, as you mentioned, were number one in, in yellow county. Well, they're now number two. They've fallen behind almonds about a year ago. But this is tomato country here in the Sacramento Valley. There's no need to do special sprays or anything like that to get fruit set because the weather conditions will, although they seem volatile, up and down and cold nights and hot days and all that kind of thing, will get the temperature range that's appropriate for the self-pollination of the flowers and the fruit set. So I don't think those sprays are necessary. All right, let's talk about some uh, early season pests of tomato plants. And uh, what I've seen on my own, and I'm sure that others may see it, are white flies and aphids. Yeah, and they're, uh, they're sucking on the leaves and obviously stressing the plant. White flies can really become a problem, especially late in the season. You know, as you get towards the end of the summer, the population can really build up. They don't harm the fruit. They don't harm the blossoms. So they're just weakening the plant somewhat by sucking on the, the you know, sucking the juices from the leaves. Um, in our nursery, we manage them just by vigorously rinsing them off. Just a very strong blast of water, focusing on the undersides of the leaves and being consistent about it, doing it 
every morning, three or four days in a row, will knock off multiple stages of the white flies rather than just one quick rinse and then thinking you're done with the job. They'll rebound if you do that. But if you get out there consistently day after day for three, four or five days in a row, you can really knock down the population and manage them that way. But when people watch me do this, they say, oh, you really mean a strong blast of water. Yeah, we're not giving them a shower. We're, we're sending them into a hurricane. <laughs> we're sending them off the plant several feet away where they will die in the wasteland of the gravel on the floor of our nursery. So it's the kind of thing you really, you want to get a nozzle that'll allow you to really give a good, strong, vigorous rinse. And you take your hand and you hold the plant and very rigorously rinse them off the leaves. If you don't want to do that, if you want to go get a spray, I would start with neem neem oil spray and that will smother a fair number of them and uh, repel the adults as they come in to lay eggs and be careful not to do that when it's above say 85 or 90 degrees but you'll find you get pretty good control with a neem spray next step up would be a light summer oil of some kind again with some caution about the daytime temperatures on that Another problem that may develop as the season progresses is you're looking at those reddish tomatoes. Oh, they look beautiful. They're coming along. But all of a sudden, you look at the bottom of the tomato and it's turning brown and wrinkly. What's going on there? Blossom and rot. B-E-R. We abbreviate it B-E-R. It is uh, very distressing and frustrating when it happens. Uh, The bottom of the fruit, as you say, gets soft and mushy and is... Basically, the fruit is inedible at that point. First of all, some varieties are very susceptible to it. Roma is well known for being the the canary in the coal mine as to a blossom end problem. Uh, Blossom end rot, we now know, is not caused by a calcium deficiency in the soil. It's not even caused by a calcium deficiency in the plant. It appears to be closely correlated with uh, fluctuating temperatures, cold temperatures, and erratic or uneven irrigation, or particularly some combination of those three things. You can make it worse by adding large amounts of certain types of fertilizers like ammonia, but the strongest correlation of blossom end rot is when you get a a rainy spell and you overwater the plants in in May just as the fruit is expanding. That's the fruit that is going to have blossom end rot seven or eight weeks later. So deep, careful, thorough watering as infrequently as possible will generally prevent blossom end rot, except when the weather is wonky. The goal then is even soil moisture. Yeah, and that's true, you know, for all your vegetables, but tomatoes in particular, most of the problems that we talk with people about early in the season have to do with how they're watering. They're watering too shallowly and not long enough. They're running a drip system. This is a very common answer when we ask, how are you watering? Oh, I run it three times a week for five minutes. That's a coffee cup of water. So a a tomato plant wants a gallon or two when you water it. And as it grows, it may need three or four gallons of water. You don't have to do that very often, depending on your soil type, obviously. But uh, a deep soaking relatively infrequently is going to be much more effective than shallow waterings that are keeping the surface too wet and never getting any any depth to them. Tomato roots go deep if they can, and they'll mine water deeper and further out if they are allowed to grow to a greater extent. But a lot of people are really, really underwatering them when they do. Now, there is another product that one can buy at a nursery that supposedly will solve blossom end rot. It, too, is a spray. It's a calcium spray. And even though blossom end rot is due to a calcium imbalance, uh, it may not be due to lack of calcium. Besides, what good is a spray on a, to a, a, a skin of a fruit? 
Yeah, well, that's a good question. I think a lot of the research on blossom end rot ended up being kind of misdirected. They noticed the link with calcium, but uh, made some assumptions about the impact of calcium on the condition you're seeing. Uh, calcium sprays won't do any good. Calcium applied to the soil won't do any good. Putting a Tums tablet under the plant won't do any good. Someone's going to recommend that to you on Facebook, I guarantee it. Uh, it's not a deficiency of calcium in the plant. It may be an imbalance within the, you know, near the fruit. There's some question about whether that's even related. It just appears to be an internal metabolic physiological disorder related to erratic temperatures and erratic moisture. And here's the good news. You pick those first ones off, you throw them away. Typically, as the temperatures get more to our normal summer conditions here and you water more deeply, the problem goes away. So the next crop is usually fine. And worth pointing out, you can also get blossom end rot on peppers and squash and some of the other plants in your garden. It's the same issue. Just water more thoroughly when you do and more carefully. Don't keep the plants soggy, but don't let them get drought stressed either. Now, we, 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 we can't attribute uh, blossom end rot to total operator error, although probably 90% of the problems are. There are just some tomato varieties that are more susceptible to it. Yeah, and I've grown some. I'll pick them out of a catalog. They'll be giant fruited ones or whatever, and I'll grow them. And all of the first ones that said good blossom end rot, I just avoid that one uh, in the future. So if you do find a consistent problem with a particular variety, I haven't noticed any pattern to it. But if you do notice a consistent problem with a particular variety, there is about 500 tomato varieties out there to choose from. And I would just move on. Uh, it, it, there are some that appear to be more susceptible to that problem. I would bet that's probably regional, too. I wouldn't be surprised if there's greater or lesser susceptibility in different regions. Wherever you're listening, there are varieties that do very well in your area, and there are varieties that don't do so well in your area, mostly related to your climate. And so you want to find the ones that are locally recommended by master gardeners, successful old-timer down the street, or your local nursery there where they actually grow tomatoes and know what they're talking about. And uh, keep trying until you find the right, oh, 20 or 30 varieties for your backyard. It's not uncommon for tomato gardeners to get some rather interesting surprises this time of year. Now, they're pleasant surprises, usually in the form of a volunteer tomato plant. If you're a curious gardener such as myself, you just might want to grow it out to see what sort of tomato develops. However, that tomato plant may be popping up in an area where you don't want it to grow. And maybe all your garden area this time of year is filled with other vegetables and fruits. There is a solution. Dig it up carefully and transplant it to a large smart pot using a good quality potting soil. Place it in a sunny area, prune it back a bit, keep the soil moist, and voila, you've got mystery tomatoes later in the summer. Smart pots are the original lightweight, long-lasting fabric plant container made in the USA. They're sturdy, easy-draining containers that'll last for years. Smart pots are made with an easy breathing fabric. It keeps them cooler than plastic pots. You're going to have a more successful tomato growing experiment or whatever you're growing in the hot summer months. You want more information? Well, visit smartpots.com Fred and be sure to include that slash Fred part. That can get you a nice discount when you buy a smart pot. Smart pots are available at many Ace and True Value hardware stores, local independent nurseries, and online at Amazon.com. Again, visit smartpots.com slash Fred and get yourself a smart pot. Or two. Or three. 
We're doing some tomato troubleshooting with Don Shore from Redwood Barn Nursery in Davis, California, going through the litany of problems that might affect your tomatoes this spring and summer. And you probably know that tomatoes do best in full sun, but too much sun can be a problem. Now there are some sun-related problems, especially in warmer areas where your plants are getting pummeled by sun all day long. And yes, tomatoes are a full sun crop, but there is such a thing as too much sun, which can result in things like fruit cracking or cat facing or solar yellowing. Sun scald, sunburn is the simplest name to apply. And it is directly on the fruit in the case of the sun scald. It's it's the fruit that's exposed to the western sky when it's 105 degrees. And some varieties are more susceptible than others only because some of them have better leaf canopy than others. I've never had sunburn on an ace tomato because the plant has got a nice dense canopy. It's a consistent problem on celebrity for me when I've grown that one because the plant is a relatively unvigorous plant that produces a lot of fruit. So a whole lot of that fruit is exposed to the direct afternoon sun. Uh, So there are varietal differences once again. And once you've grown a number of tomatoes, you'll find some of them are just leafier, more vigorous, shade themselves better. Champion does a very good job of shading itself and produces a very large amount of large fruit. And I mentioned celebrity by comparison. It's a chronic problem on that particular variety for me. So you could, if you want to grow a particular variety that's susceptible to sunburn on the fruit, figure out a way to shade it a little bit from the hot afternoon sun, Uh, maybe rig up a a little structure to the west of the plant and put some 50% shade cloth that you buy from a local garden center. Um, Another option might just be to put them where there's a little natural shade, not too much, or just plant varieties that are more dense and leafy. And then you'll notice that, again, as with blossom enderite, you'll notice varietal differences over time will lead you away from some varieties and towards others as you slowly build this collection of your favorite varieties that does well in your particular region. And it probably would help, too, to keep your pruning shears in their holster because uh, the more leaf uh, cover that it has, uh, less chance there is of sun-related problems. I would say pruning tomatoes is almost never necessary. And I know that that causes some controversy when we say that, but uh, it has very little benefit. If you're taking foliage off and exposing fruit, you're definitely going to get that adverse effect of sunburn on the fruit itself. Um, It reduces yield overall when you prune tomatoes. The only reason I can think of that would be a possible benefit would be in areas where late blight is a real problem, pruning them to get more open habits so you get better air circulation, but that increases your risk of sunburn. So I would suggest that keeping pruning at an absolute minimum, unless there's some weird training technique you've adopted that absolutely requires it. Pruning is for people in Minnesota where their season begins on Labor Day, on Memorial Day and ends on Labor Day. Uh, Here we've got such a long season that uh, we can allow the fruit to set very late in the season. We don't have to prune the vines for size control, and we'll still get plenty of ripe fruit. There are some yellowing issues uh, with the leaves on with some diseases. In fact, if you buy a tomato plant, you may see letters next to the name of the tomato like V, F or N or yep. T or A for that matter. But uh, the V and the F are, are two uh, problems that can cause a plant to turn yellow, and that would be verticillium and fusarium. Yeah, those are two problems in our area where we have, uh, these are soil-borne diseases, so they may be in your area if your homes were built on old agricultural soil, or if you bring in soil, uh, inadvertently bringing in the disease with it. One of the reasons I've always concerned about people getting um, tomato plants from their fellow backyard gardeners who started the seeds themselves, a lot of home gardeners like to use dirt 
use uh, compost from their own yard as they as they grow them. Unfortunately, that can be a source of contamination into your yard. So it'd be best if all the gardeners out there who are sharing transplants use packaged soils rather than homemade garden soils. If you get them, it's a real problem. Verticillium and Fusarium are very challenging to eliminate, um, impossible basically to eliminate. And even the rotation practices that we all recommend, that special three-year rotation of only nightshade plants in this area and then no nightshade plants in this area, nightshade family is what I'm referring to. Even that's only marginally effective. So your best bet, if you have a problem with Verticillium, Fusarium or nematodes is to look for that VFN on the label. New hybrids, modern hybrids that have verticillium, fusarium, and nematode tolerance uh, built into them. Champion is a good example, but there's a lot of others out there. And uh, that's that's why you see that on the labels. And, and East Coast gardeners are now seeing more and more varieties with late blight resistance, which is a nice kind of new wrinkle in the breeding de- direction. And the letters T and A uh, refer to a, a tobacco mosaic virus and yep. alternaria. Yep. And uh, the, as far as tobacco mosaic virus, don't smoke around your plants. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> that one's easy. I've actually never seen a case of TM tobacco mosaic in my career, so I gather that's more of a greenhouse operation concern. But uh, those those resistances that are built into the hybrids are a distinct advantage. This is why when we're talking on your program early in the season about going and selecting your tomato varieties, we we both kind of push get at least a few hybrids in there. You know, they're, they're going to have this resistance bred into them. And I know people love heirloom tomatoes and all, but they don't have that resistance built into them. So diversifying the number of varieties and the types of varieties you're planting can be really important. And one more uh, problem that may affect your uh, tomatoes, where the lower leaves and stems look kind of bronze or oily brown color, the leaves dry up and drop, that could be russet mites. That's an interesting one. I've seen it several times, and it's really hard to diagnose from someone's description because they think it just looks like a watering problem. You know, the plant looks like it needs it, not wilting, but like it's sort of drying out from the ground up. I happened to have that problem very early on when I was a gardener here in the valley, so I got it identified. And it, it yes, it looks like it's browning slowly from the ground up the vine. The vine keeps growing with reasonable vigor, keeps flowering, keeps setting, but just sort of steadily declines as the season goes along. It can be a tough one. Oil sprays can be very helpful early in the season. If you've had it one year, you might wish to spray for it the next. The thing, though, is to get it properly diagnosed because it takes a 40-power hand lens to see those little mites. And uh, most nurseries and honestly, most master gardeners aren't going to recognize that problem. It's not something they encounter very often. So uh, take some pictures of the plant, uh, get real close with a, with a hand lens and look at the leaf. You might see the russet mite on there. If you have a problem one year, get rid of all the tomato foliage, all the debris at the end of the season. Don't compost it. Send it away. Send it off to the landfill and um, watch your plants carefully the next year or perhaps give them a preventive spray with a light oil as they're beginning to grow. Because it can be a frustrating problem when you get it. By the time you figure out what it is, it might be a little late to do anything about it. Is there any truth to the old adage, uh, avoid planting tomatoes near petunias and potatoes to avoid russet mites? Not that I know of. I think petunias look lovely with tomatoes. We've been doing some tomato troubleshooting with Don Shore, owner of Redwood Barn Nursery in Davis, California. Don, thanks for the tomato tips. All right. Always great to talk to you, Fred. Rounding out our top three most listened to interviews of the first 100 episodes of Garden Basics has to do with the soil. 
And if you've listened to many of these episodes, you know that I'm very fond of saying that it's all about the soil. It really is. For successful plants, you need a healthy, vibrant soil. Back on episode seven, we talked with Giselle Schoninger. She's the organic gardening instructor for Kellogg Garden Products, producers of several lines of widely available soils, mulches, potting mixes, and fertilizers for home gardeners here in the western United States. They're sold under a variety of labels, including Kellogg Garden Organics, as well as GNB Organics. We'll have a link to them in the show notes today. Back in episode seven, Giselle explained how soils work and why soil is the key to a great garden. You know, I think that my background, is, as I've shared with you in the past, actually is in the use of chemicals. I went to a production agricultural school, and about 16 years ago, I transitioned over to organics, and I've helped build three different brands of organic products. I've been with Kellogg's for 11 years, and I tell you, all my soil and fertilizer classes made far more sense when I started working with, working with nature instead of trying to control her. And... You know, I think that when we look at fertility of, of how we feed plants, most of us that are using chemical fertilizers to feed plants, we truly, that is what we're doing. We're feeding the plant, but at the expense of the soil. What a lot of people don't realize is you should be feeding the soil, not the plant. If you feed the soil, you will be feeding the plant because that's how the plant gets its nutrients. Absolutely. When we look at chemical fertilizers and, you know, now this is just part of the story. It's not just about NPK, nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium. But when you see a 30-30-30 NPK or 20-20-20 or a triple 16, that material is a chemically formulated product. It's salt. It's a salt-based product. It forces that plant to grow and it creates a plant with a very thin cell wall, thin leaves, stems, and flowers. That plant is like an attractant to insects and diseases. But the damage is what we're doing below the soil. Those salts kill off beneficial life. And when you kill the good guys off, now you have a proliferation of disease-causing pathogens. Organics work in the opposite fashion. An, an all-purpose fertilizer might only be a 4-4-4 NPK, but it's about feeding the life in the soil, as you just said. So when you build good life in the soil, the natural good guys will always eventually outcompete the bad guys. And above ground, the plant has a thick cell wall, thick leaves, stems, and flowers. That plant now has more of a resiliency. It has a better immune system, if you will, from insect and disease attack. What are the key words on synthetic fertilizers that would indicate it contains salt? Well, you know, actually most people wouldn't know that on a fertilizer. You wouldn't really understand that that is really what the co the component is. When it goes down through the soil profile, chemical fertilizers, very much like, let's say, steer manure. You know, 50 years ago, steer manure was a good product. But when you think about how confined the animals are, how regimented their diet is, it's they're not grass-fed often. So it's high in salt. Those fertilizers are also high in salt. When you add a salt material to a, to a clay soil, let's say, you're only going to compact that soil further. So, but back to your question, really, anytime you see a material where the NPK is higher than, let's say, a 12, a triple 12, and you see something like urea or ammonium, 
those are the kinds of things that should really alert you to the fact if you can't really read what it, what the words are like on a lot of the food that we eat today um, pretty much those are going to be materials that are artificially formulated now you mentioned steer manure and the amount of salts it has and I imagine a lot of people are asking themselves now well wait a minute steer manure isn't that an organic fertilizer wouldn't that be good for the soil well, steer manure, a lot of people use it's it let me put it this way. It is better than not using anything. But it is truly high in salt. So it's a value product. I mean, of course people use it and everybody's watching their page, you know, their their pocketbook, which we all have to do today. So if that's what someone chooses to use, but just know if you're adding it to a clay soil that's already compact and dense, you're truly making it the soil more compacted and more dense by adding that salt. So we have other types of manures. We have some chicken manure. Um, we have a product called the Gardener and Bloom line. Um, has a product called Harvest Supreme. It does have 15% chicken manure in it. It has mycorrhiza. It has earthworm castings, kelp. We add a whole host of organic nutrients within that material. So we have a whole breadth of product lines. We have worm castings. Worm castings are awesome to add into your 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 either raised bed or in-ground plantings um, and are not going to be as high in salt. And you don't need that much worm castings for it to be effective either. I love worm castings. I tell you, if people would really start using worm castings or create, I have a worm bin, which I, I love. It's it's like a science project the first few times you do it. But once you get the hang of it, you realize you're really not doing anything except feeding them. The worms are doing all the work. And you can have some fun with some of these materials, especially in raised beds. You know, this has become the new trend over the, over the years is instead of dealing with our hard pan native soil, if we build a raised bed, now, I taught gardening as therapy. I was worked as a horticultural therapist for 10 years in convalescent homes. At that time, you know, it was really for people in wheelchairs. But when we look now, why not raise the garden up to us? We're getting older, Fred. Yeah. You know, it's nice to have that raised bed. But the beauty is we get to layer in the kind of materials that we need. If you find that it's getting compressed down, fluff it up with some materials. Our soil building compost is great for adding. I look at it that product as fiber just like we need fiber now this is a little bit of a stretch but just like we need fiber to keep us our system functioning properly the soil needs fiber as well to aerate it to open it up to help with drainage to allow the beneficial aerobic microorganisms in the soil to allow them to breathe because if it's too compacted that life in the soil can't breathe which means the roots can't breathe which means water can't percolate through the soil so raised beds are fantastic and you can have some fun by adding in different types of materials as you go through the season you know it's fascinating this whole movement that we're seeing it's it's almost like the back to the earth movement finally arrived from the 60s and the 70s and i think because we're so tech we're so involved with technology people are on the road more um, our lives have become so hectic that this idea of of growing our own food and slowing down a little bit um, has really become part of our culture today it boils down to if you feed the soil you're feeding the plants that's right it's a totally different approach you know we took a detour in the early 30s and 40s when we started using synthetics really in the early 1940s right around world war ii when we started creating a lot of these synthetics we were using minerals you know farmers were definitely a farm was like a closed system all the 
organic matter got comp all the manure got composted and put back into the earth but when we started focusing on production you know it's really sort of a misnomer that we created more food because what we really did is we destroyed the soil system we farmed the very life out of the soil and in over maybe a decade from the 1940s into the 50s we had to triple and quadruple the amount of chemical fertilizers we were using to try and get the yields that we were getting in the first few years. So it's really truly a misnomer to say that we increased yields. It's short that was a short-term temporary result. And and you're right, Fred, it's about feeding the life in the soil. The organisms in the soil secrete enzymes that break organic matter down. I mean, if we didn't have all this biology in the soil, the earth would be full of debris. But they're cycling these nutrients back into the soil and roots then pull from the soil what they need when they need it. All it takes is mulch, all it takes is compost, maybe a cover crop or two, and you can have healthy soil as well. Well, Giselle Schoniger from Kellogg Garden Products, thanks for spending a few minutes with us and uh, telling us about our soil. Thank you, Farmer Fred. It's been a delight. Thanks to all of our customers and all of our listeners out there. Thank you so much for your support. Thanks for listening to Episode 100 of the Garden Basics Podcast. Links to all the segments can be found in the show notes. And a big thank you to you for listening, commenting, and sharing your joy of gardening with us and with others.